You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network. And it is early Thursday, late enough in this week to have developed a narrative. But really, Tuesday, in my mind, is what set the tone of this week. It's almost like in Deuteronomy when God tells the Israelites when they're entering the land of Israel, look, get up on the mountain and we're going to give you the curses and the blessings. Behold, I put in front of you the curses and the blessings, life and death. Choose for yourself life. There were two narratives on that day. You had the Cohen Manafort stuff going on. And then you had the story of this illegal alien in Iowa among many, many criminal aliens around murdering Molly Tibbetts. Or it was discovered on that day that he had murdered her um, and was here in the country illegally. And I said to myself, and it was funny because most conservative commentators were bashing the liberal media for not focusing on that. But ironically, they themselves, for the most part, were focusing on the Mueller stuff and Manafort. And I was saying, this is the dichotomy. If you want to win this election, you could fight every minute from now until then to make this about protecting America from getting fleeced by this needless, avoidable crime wave from criminal aliens, and then more broadly about drugs, sanctuaries, crime, as we've been talking about the last few episodes, this criminal justice nonsense. Or we could try to have our hot take on Manafort and defending Trump from this and that, and I'm just telling you it's not going to end well. Defend the policies that he supposedly campaigned on But in terms of the character, I mean, look, it's all true. All of it is true. It's true that Manafort, that that, um, Mueller has overstepped his boundaries, has made this kind of an open case about any person associated with Trump, anything they ever did that has nothing to do with, with Russian collusion. It's true that Democrats at the same high level have all sorts of people with tax problems, campaign finance problems. And, you know, if you would balance it out, you would get a very different perspective if you would focus on them just as much and had an endless prosecutor on Hillary. That's true. But it's also true that Trump promised that he didn't do many things, and it's turning out he did. Now, so far, they're not necessarily criminal, especially in this case if the money didn't come from his campaign account, the payoff money. But, you know, he did tell us he didn't pay anyone off. So now it's, well, it wasn't from a campaign account. Oh, okay. But, you know, I'm not going to sit and stick my neck out there on something I can't defend because I don't know what he did or didn't do, and I don't know what other shoes there to drop. Um, the die is cast on that already. And the best we can do is focus on what we want to focus on. So that's what we're going to continue to do here. 
you know, for today's show, I want to focus on a very important principle we've established since the inception of this show. And it's really piggybacking off one of the principles in my book, Stolen Sovereignty, that we can't choose our native-born citizens. But we sure as heck can choose our immigrants. And the point is that immigration is an elective policy. We can and should only choose the best people given that so many people want to come here, supply and demand, and we, we get to choose our – we have the, we have, we, we have the upper hand here. And that we should never take in people that are public charges for the most part, health concerns, and certainly never, never people with bad moral character and certainly murderers. And, you know, whenever you have illegals committing crimes and certainly murder, it's not about... The outcome, the outcome of that murder in terms of the severity to the, to the victim's family or from the vantage point of the perpetrator, it's not about you know being more severe, more evil if it's coming from an illegal immigrant or a legal immigrant than a, a U.S. citizen. But from a public policy standpoint, it's redressable. It's utopian to believe we could deter every murderer. Although I would argue, you know, if we had a stronger criminal justice system, not a weaker one, we could deter more more than we currently are. But when it comes to to illegal aliens, I want to tell you, and and even legal immigrants, if we had, if we were properly guarding our sovereignty and utilizing the constitutional tools and the responsibility rooted in the social contract to protect Americans first and foremost from external danger, we would have almost no criminal aliens in this country because we wouldn't let them in to the extent we make a mistake and either undetect or not detect an illegal who comes in or um, mistakenly bring in an illegal immigrant that's, you know, we, we missed and that, that's to be expected. The first sign of trouble, we get rid of them. And that, that is a thesis I've been banging away at for such a long time. And I want to make very clear this is not just about one victim. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about all oh, the victims' families speaking out. They don't want to make it political. Oh, you're politicizing this. I want to say very clearly there's a big difference between what the left always does and what we're talking about here. We've been talking about that every day before – um, you know, Molly's death, and we're not so much focusing on her. We're focusing on the perpetrator and the policies behind it. I have no problem. The left has the full right to take one of these shootings, school shootings, and try to make it about gun control, and then we could refute it and make it about more notoriety, societal problems, and to a certain extent, criminal justice deform. That's fair game. That's public policy. What, what shouldn't be done is what they do is when they shove microphones in front of the actual victims and they use them literally as human shields where to silence debate and get all emotional. We're not doing that. We're being very intellectual here. 
obviously because it was very notorious and it was very bizarre the disappearing and people are looking for so we're going to to use this to talk about that and i don't have problems with the left using the news cycle it's that they use the actual victims and have them speak out for their cause we're not asking and would never go up to um you know in this case the tivitz family and Asked them to be an ambassador for this. Even the one time I had a victim on my show, she reached out to me. I didn't go seeking that. So I just wanted to get that off the bat. And, and, and just so you know, this is not about one person. Look, stuff happens. You can find the story for everything. This is a pervasive problem. Don't just say, oh, don't make her the issue. No, this is a public policy problem. In fiscal year 2017 alone, ICE apprehended criminal aliens that cumulatively together, meaning some were probably doubled, but together were responsible for 1,800 murders. That's just in one fiscal year, and that is just um, – just where they have access. Remember, most illegal aliens live in sanctuary cities like California, and often that's the whole issue. They play hide the ball, and they don't – they let them go. So there's there's likely a lot more than 1,800 homicide victims of illegal aliens in fiscal year 2017. 80,000 DUI offenses, 76,000 dangerous drug offenses. More than 48,000 assaults, more than 12,800 burglaries, more than 11,000 weapons offenses, more than 5,600 sexual offenses, more than 2,000 kidnapping offenses. That's a hell of a lot of needless crimes that if you didn't have the magnets of inviting them in and you had the external and interior enforcement we were all promised, you wouldn't have this. It's all redressable. We don't need to be having this. We have enough of our own culture of violence. We don't need to import some of the worst elements of cultures that are even more violent. Everyone agrees because even the left is saying, oh, they're fleeing violence. Well, yeah, well, now, but if you bring it in mass numbers, you're going to bring in the violence from places like Mexico and the Northern Triangle of Central America. Again, in Texas alone, according to DPC, DPS, from... Fiscal, fiscal year 2011 until the first quarter of 2018, this is just one state. The, the illegals that have been processed in their jail have cumulatively committed 663,000 crimes. And again, it's likely double that because we only apprehend 50%. Those are the people that there are downright DHS fingerprints for them, meaning that they came into contact with federal authorities. A lot of the worst elements are the ones that successfully remain undetected. So this is this is very pervasive. Then you got John Lott's very studious study of hard data, not abstract surveys, hard data of the Arizona prison population. He got in, in cooperation with the attorney general um, of Arizona who prepared it for, for a court case, that illegal immigrants in Arizona are at least 142% more likely to be convicted of a crime than other Arizonans. And these aren't just immigration and drug violations. They're at least 163% more likely 
to commit first-degree murder. 168% more likely to commit second-degree murder. 189.6% more likely to commit manslaughter. So this is a very big problem. Um, They're 45.4% more likely to have been gang members. So it's not just like, oh, there's a few crimes that are avoidable. This is particularly a violent population we're bringing in. Not all of them, but a very large subset of it. And it's all avoidable. And it's through that prism I want to discuss mainly two things in the news. So the, the, the story is very fluid, and it keeps changing. So what we know so far is that this individual who was caught, who admit, admitted to stalking her and then showed, showed the body to the police, Christian Bahina Rivera, 20, 24-year-old Mexican who worked – in this town in Brooklyn, Iowa, for four years, we're not. It's not clear how much longer before that he came, but it does appear that he came in around the time of Obama's DACA that he started. That now he was not himself, never applied for it. But this is the demographic he would have been eligible. Bizarrely, this is a unique case where he did not have any priors. The first case I've ever seen that. Usually, when you commit murder, especially like that, you know, first degree, you know, just do that to someone, um, you know, usually you're going to see DUIs, assaults, drug charges, things like that. Uh, it, it doesn't mean he didn't do it, but he, he was never arrested for that, and it looks like the state or feds never had contact with him, so he totally went undetected, um, came in, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, in the irony of all ironies, he worked for this Yarby Farms, um, a dairy farm owned by the brother and son of Craig Lang, who was the once the pre- president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, the Iowa Board of Regents, and was a candidate for Secretary of Agriculture. So clearly he's in with the establishment Open Borders Iowa Farm Lobby, and they employed this guy. Now, first they put out a statement and they said, we use the verify, and you know, and everyone was like, oh, what the heck? You see, you verified it didn't work. It didn't catch him. Then they recanted and said that he here's what happened. They didn't use E-Verify. He came with a fake Elias, a stolen identity, out-of-state documents with an accompanying Social Security card. This is what um, uh, Dane Lang said at a press conference. And... Now, I, you know, look, I don't know if we can believe them, but let's just take them face value. They say they ran it through Social Security um, employment verification, not E-Verify. So this is a pretty good system, and it will check um, whether it's a legitimate Social Security card, and but it does not check immigration status, and they said it checked out. Now, let me make something very clear. Based on the information I know right now, I am my goal is not to convict or indict, not not just in a legal sense, but you know, politically this farm. Although you know, based on the people running it and their connections, it's clear. You know, I, I whatever. I mean, we know what they're. I, I want to attack their politics, not what they did. You know, E-Verify is not. We want to make it mandatory. It's not. 
Um, so they, they didn't do anything. There's no evidence they did anything wrong here. That's not my issue. My issue is not what they should have done. It's what, as a, as a country, we should be doing that should prevent this. And this is the big thing no one wants to talk about. Identity theft. It's an 800-pound gorilla that's been ignored by the government. It's been mollycoddled. They go out of their way to screw American victims of identity theft, mainly at the hands of illegal aliens, in order to protect them. Here's the big thing here. Now, I don't know. When they say Social Security verification, I don't know if they are – the only system that I know of that they could refer, refer to is SSNVS. Um, so basically SSNVS – I mean that's the only program out of the Social Security Administration. It's, it's – um. Uh, social security number verification service where an employer could basically take their whole payroll, even retroactively, not just new hirees and run them through, you know, give them to them and say, Hey, what's the deal? And they could check out the social security cards. Now, again, like I said, what it doesn't do is check out, um, immigration status, but presumably barring DACA, which Obama threw a monkey wrench in that and told DACA, if you have a valid social security card, you know, the assumption would be that, you know, look, you can only get that it is valid. I mean, you know, only a legal immigrant could have a social security card if you have the right to work in America. Now, I'm not going to, for the purpose of this show, get into the nitty-gritty of the merits of SSNVS and why E-Verify is slightly better, um, you know, checks it against the DHS, FBI, I guess, State Department, um, you know, all the databases. But, and again, I don't know if they are referring to SSNVS um, or if we could even believe, I mean, you know, keep in mind the owner... Anyway, you know, at his level is not going to be checking out. It would have been a foreman. And, you know, these are people that very much believe in employing illegal aliens. So, but let's just take their word for it. There's a big point everyone's missing. Almost all illegal aliens have fake identities. A good number of them have stolen identities. So fake identities, you just make it up. It's nothing. Um, stolen identities, when you take a legitimate one from an American or a legal immigrant, whatever, and you use it. There's a very big problem here. So E-Verify, and, and I would argue even SSNVS would work, but there's one caveat that we've been advocating for, and Lamar Smith has a bill, H.R. 3711, his version of E-Verify would take care of this problem. You know, the system is very good. It, it, it's, um, it takes two minutes to use. It's really, you know, it, it's nothing. I, I, just I just ran my name through it the other day. It literally takes two minutes. The notion that this is some onerous regulation amidst all the regulations we put on businesses – 
under law anyway, current law, you have to supply your employer with your name, birth date, and um, social security number for the I-9 form to get hired. So it's no new information you're providing. You're, you're taking the existing information. It's not a database. It's not a new government tracking system. For better or for worse, and many of us believe for worse, government already has us around the you-know-where on that. They have everything on us. They have the databases. So E-Verify doesn't create anything new. It's a, a pinging system. It takes the data you already have to give, and in two minutes, it pings it against the databases they have. And if it's a match, you're good to go. If it's not, whatever. It's remarkably – it doesn't cause problems for citizens. I have the numbers in my piece. 98.91% are immediately confirmed as a match. Another 0.15% are confirmed um, after an initial mismatch. Usually it's people whose – it's mainly women after they got married and they go for another job and they didn't yet – their name wasn't changed. It's some sort of glitch like that. Um, the remaining people are – not eligible because they're usually it means they're illegal. Um, any tiny amount of handful of people out of the 17 million or so cases that might have had issues, it, it, here's the deal with that. You know, what people forget, so a lot of people, you know, these super libertarians debate the issue over, oh, like the burden on the um the business, but they forget about the utility of E-Verify to the American citizen. Number one is if government screwed you up and you're not registered properly in Social Security, don't blame E-Verify for that. I'd rather know about that when I'm 23 years old applying for a job and I have a little inconvenience. Oh, there's something wrong. Let's go and, and um, you know call them up. Like, hey, no, I'm such and such. I'm an American citizen. Here's the stuff. Here's the documentation. Fix it rather than be 70, 68 years old or whatever, collecting Social Security for the first time. And, oh, whoops, you're not eligible. So, I mean, that's not a problem. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation by some liber libertarians about what E-Verify is and isn't. But then there's the amazing thing about E-Verify that people forget dealing with identity theft. Even under current law, and I'm going to get you know. So, what Lamar Smith's bill does is, in addition to mandating E-Verify, it requires USCIS every time your social security number is used, you get they have to inform the guy. So right off the bat, if you're an illegal with a fake social security number, so then E-Verify is going to get you. It's fake. If it's legit, that was stolen from an American. Yeah, you might – it might confirm you at the moment, but within a day or so, you're going to have an American notified, and then you're going to be caught. And more importantly, or just as important, the American is going to be saved. It's, it's a two for the price of one, Lamar's effort. It's a way of clamping down and protecting identity theft, but it's all and, – and then you know deterring, obviously, illegal hiring, and you know pretty much that's how you choke off illegal immigration. But if you go to um, myeverify.uscis.gov or just Google um, eVerify self-lock, even under current law, current practice, it's optional. There's a service eVerify provides, and you know how much I hate government, but this is one good thing. Remember, 
I'm as libertarian as, as they get on fiscal issues. I don't, I don't believe Social Security originally was constitutional. But it is what it is. At the end of the day, it's there, and it controls our life, and it's so much a part of it. So once it's there, you better believe it is a valid government responsibility to verify and secure your Social Security number. That's a whole other angle of E-Verify people forget that's so important. So you could register for an account. I did this. Um, you, you register, and once you have an account, then you could fill out it, – it, it, it's very easy – this self-lock program where they lock your – You know, it's a way of having peace of mind. You preemptively – or, or if you find you have trouble, then it's good you find it and you deal with it now. But um, you presumably, if not, if it hasn't been stolen, boom, you lock it. So no one could use it. It locks it for you. The only thing you got to be careful is um, if you ever change jobs before you, um, you know, um, do anything, go log back into your account and update your status. You know, because otherwise. It will think that you know when you apply for a new job and use it, it will think you know it could be a far. It will think it's another person, uh, a fraudster using it. So you just verify it's you. But it's a great. I mean, it's a great system. And like, oh, oh, stupid government, stop tracking me. Mind your own stupid business. Look, <laughs> I, I don't disagree, but it is what it is. They have that on us already. We're like a bunch of like you know, servile puppy dogs, each with a, my social security number, but it is what it is. I mean, that's what we have now, and it's better to have it secure than not secure. They have a responsibility to protect us. This is what needs to happen in this case, and it, and it bears it out here. So don't tell me, oh, you verified it doesn't work. Believe me, it would work. But this is a broader problem, and it ties into criminal justice deform. Identity theft is one of those crimes that the entire open borders cartel and these farm bureaus and farm lobbies included view as low-level nonviolent. Every single iteration of amnesty seeks to shield um, certain drug offenders, but certainly drunk drivers and identity theft from criminal alien laws and not only doesn't it prosecute them, we never prosecute them. We never go after them. We never deter them. We never try to catch them, which it's so easy to do. Government has data for everything. But we downright give them amnesty. The good lat limited amnesty among the good provisions in the bill was the only bill that excluded those who engaged in identity theft from fraud. Because here's the deal. Because if you actually went after it, here's the dirty little secret. More than half of them commit identity theft. It's part of the coyotes. It's part of what they pay for. It's part of the deal. It's part and parcel of the entry. They say, these are people that never did anything illegal other than entering the country illegally. Now, first of all, that in itself, they don't belong here. I mean, sovereignty, we don't want them. You know, we wouldn't, most of these people, we would never bring in under a legal immigrant system. Um, because of just their poverty and you know what they have to offer or not offer, um, but it, but aside from that, it's not true. They all engage in identity theft. You hear all the commercials. This is a huge industry. This is a big. I mean, you tell people who've gone through this, and you know, if you, email me dharitz at crtv.com if you have um, you know, stories about this. I'm sure people in the audience. Uh, thankfully, I've never had this problem. It's devastating. That's a big crime. But no. 
they don't want to turn over that rock because they're going to discover that it will render most of them criminal aliens. Wouldn't be eligible for the amnesty program. So many people were given this by DACA. And I want to, I mean, this is unbelievable. I want to um, read to you from, just, just to show how evil this is, how this is so avoidable, this is so redressable, we could nail them with identity theft. That's how you would discover all these people. Keep in mind, so all of, um, again, most of the real hardcore murderers had priors before, and they should have been thrown out, and that's totally redressable. That's sanctuary issue, that's you know, mandatorized detentions, that's easy. But what do you do about the ticking time bombs? Like a guy like this, which appears to be a rare case where, you know, he had identity theft, never was arrested for anything, totally undetected. What do you do? But that's the thing. If government was engaging in interior enforcement and you had E-Verify and identity theft protection, whether it's a job whether it's requiring this same E-Verify as we should require it for the motor vehicle associations should you, to, to use for driver's licenses, for vehicle registrations. I'm saying you got to live here somehow. Believe me, they would be caught. I mean, you could have the rare case where they find the right identity that doesn't get pinged and... You know, they talk about maybe deceased. Most of them don't use deceased people. But again, if it's deceased, Social Security Administration is supposed to terminate that number. So that should be pinged as well. And then if it's not, if it's somehow, they, you know, they, they net, Social Security Administration didn't get to it, if it's a deceased person, you know, they're going to have problems with that because usually it's going to be multiple illegals using it then. And that in itself is detected because it would detect anomalies and, um, you know, in the system, multiple uses of it. So it's pretty darn, it's a pretty gar- darn good thing. There's a reason why they will die on a hill not to have mandatory E-Verify, particularly Lamar Smith's version, because it will actually stop the problem. You can't live here. I mean, the bot- you know, everyone asks me, man, you know, I don't know. How do you stop this? It's, it's, it's tough. I don't know. It's the same novel idea about interior enforcement that I said about border security. I said, I have a novel idea. Make illegal immigration illegal. Like, what, huh? You know, because it's, believe it or not, it's, it's, we send mixed signals. Just like with the border, well, you can't come here through our border, but, well, you could ask for asylum and we, then we pretty much let you in and everyone's asylum. Well, that's the problem. So the same thing here, like, you're officially here illegally, but, we're not, you could kind of get a job and pay taxes. We'll take out payroll taxes, and we won't come after you and deport you based on the data we find through the IRS. Um, and actually, we're going to force states to give you driver's licenses. We're going to give you access to the courts, um, birthright citizenship for your kids, and then you're here to stay. Oh, and you have access to welfare um, and all other good things. K-12 through education, Most a lot of states um, – um, you know, in-state tuition for college. If you didn't have any of that, just stop the positive benefits. Deported any time a person came into contact with, um, ICE, now or, or local law enforcement. 
you're done. And then you go after identity theft. They have the data on this. This is everything. I want to show you how pervasive this problem is and how complicit our government, at least until this administration, has been. This is a guy, Jen Ting, wrote this um, earlier this year in March. He's a professor of law at Temple University. He wrote this in the Washington Times. He exposed this. President Trump's termination of the Obama administration's DACA program has drawn mixed reactions. Although the lawfulness of the program, program is very doubtful, public support for DACA amnesty appeared to be widespread based in part on the public perception that dreamers have committed no crime other than illegal entry. In fact, it is likely that many, if not most, DACA applicants who held regular jobs had committed the crime of perjury by providing their employers with a stolen or fake social security number for tax reporting purposes. The Social Security Administration has estimated that three out of four illegal aliens possess an SSN that belongs to somebody else. This is astounding. When USCIS began accepting DACA applications on August 15, 2012, applicants were required to complete a standard work authorization form that required applicants to, quote, include all Social Security numbers they have ever used. In other words, many DACA applicants would have been obliged to confess in writing that they had committed a felony. However, as soon as this potential disincentive to apply for DACA was brought to the administration's attention, USCIS rushed out a statement that they were, quote, not interested in identifying individual violations of, quote, some federal law in an employment relationship, and they amended their DACA website to limit their reporting of SSN numbers by DACA applicants to those, quote, officially issued to you by the Social Security Administration. Word of this de facto amnesty for Social Security fraud quickly spread, one example being the following notice from the National Immigration Law Center, a bunch of Soros vermin. Um, quote, are you waiting to apply for DACA because you've used an SSN that was not yours, or is your employer afraid to provide you with employment records out of fear of immigration enforcement? Helpful new guidance from USCIS may answer your question. I mean, this is, this is pure evil. Forget about it, trying to even punish these people, much less even deny them the DACA. Just for the purpose of helping the Americans so that you would now know who was informed and then they could inform these citizens. That, that's the malfeasance here. No one will talk about this. Identity theft is the linchpin of this issue. E-Verify plus identity theft plus interior enforcement, sanctuary cities going after them, and getting rid of all the bennies and birthright citizenship. Come back to me if you have illegal immigrants coming here, even without a border wall. Certainly with it. And by the way, while this city itself was not a sanctuary, all the surrounding jurisdictions were. Benton County, Johnson County, Marion County, and Jefferson County, according to our friends at Center for Immigration Studies. It is so avoidable. It's not just avoidable. We, we encourage this. We do it to ourselves. All these murders are so avoidable. They should never be here, and they could easily be kept out, and not in a utopian like, oh, we could stop all evil in the world. No. This is so mechanically redressable by simply not self-immolating. But why is this done? 
It's done at the behest of the lobbies, and not just the left-wing lobbies, but the predominantly Republican Chamber of Commerce and the Farm Bureaus that the father of this individual who owned this farm, well-connected, was president of. See, I'm as free market as they come. Laissez-faire. Businesses, do, do what you want. Don't regulate. But... There's something called sovereignty in a civil society, in a country, in a culture. And it's not the natural order of things, as Adam Smith would say, to import the third world and people that are dangerous and wouldn't, aren't meant to be a part of the American spirit, the common cause that our founders talked about with immigration my book, chapter chapter six, you could see all about this. Certain things supersede that. You might look, I might want to find someone to mow my lawn, um, I don't know, for, for ten bucks. Well, I can't, I can't find anyone to do that. You know, what am I going to do? I absolutely cannot find it. So let me go petition government to bring in, I don't know, I mean, let me just pick the poorest country in the world. You know, tens of thousands of people from there, they'll be willing to do it. Is that the free market? Is that natural? A country would never do that naturally. What bothers me is about these little bastards, and that's who they are, and I'm sorry. I understand if you want the cheapest labor. I'm, I'm, I'm very business sense. I get that. You could desire that, just like I desire a guy to mow my lawn for $5. But what they're doing in places like Iowa, they're taking rural areas, beautiful, cohesive, patriotic communities that have a very strong identity, a strong culture, and most importantly, they're peaceful. People don't want to live in the urban areas because they want to, you know, they they like the peaceful nature of it. And they're bringing the worst elements so they can have their thing. See, they think it's my business. What do you? I, I, cheap labor. I want. I want my f farm. But here's a problem: you're bringing in exclusively men who are single and wind up living together. Young men from the most violent cultures. They're not all like that. Some of them work very hard, including some of the bad guys work very hard. But as one sheriff in one of these places once explained to me, you know, we love them during the day, not so much at night. See, what happens is some of them might be big muscular guys and, you know, they, they work hard. But what happens is, you know, because the culture they're involved in, they um, and they're used to, they take their meager wages, and they buy liquor and they get drunk. They have drunk driving. They commit all sorts of disturbances. I mean, ima imagine living in a in a rural area your whole life, and then suddenly they bring in. 500, 700 in a farm meatpacking plant, 
Hondurans, Somalis. That's by the way, that's happening too. It's from the Middle East too, um, because they're you know the even Central American birth rates are going down. That's where it, that's where you follow it. It's from those type of countries with high birth rates. They're going to places like Somalia, and you're changing the character of a, of, a, of a neighborhood. You're, um, and but most importantly, you're bringing in people that are very problematic. They might get the job done for you while assaulting people and drug trafficking and being involved in all sorts of stuff. I'm not saying like there, you know, rural areas are better than cities. I mean, we don't want this anywhere. I'm just saying like, you know, in the urban areas, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, we got the problems anyway, you know, Baltimore, Chicago, you name it, Detroit. But, you know, you would expect that at least we could salvage these areas where we don't already have the problems. They're bringing it in, and the tip of the spear is the ag industry. This is a whole other side you're not going to hear from people. This is a very big problem. And this is the reality. The reality of of what was established. Since our colonial laws... Since our founding, that we understood good moral character. We can't pick our American natural born. We have a lot of SOBs among American citizens, among a lot of terrific Americans. But, you know, you can't deport them. If they do something, if you want to neutralize their threat, you have to be able to land a conviction. And that's very difficult as we've talked about so much. In this case, you don't have to wait. You throw them out. Every illegal, and as far as a legal immigrant, here's the deal. It was understood that we'd have a probationary period where, you know, A, we try to, the best of our degree, only bring in people with good moral character. But there's the second backstop if you want to get naturalized and you want to remain here, we're going to watch you. And the first thing you do we don't like even though an American would get to stay, but you don't, and we throw you out. That's why I could say with confidence that it is so easy to almost never have any crime from an illegal, from, from, from a non-citizen, because it, it's so redressable. And, you know, again, this, this, this I want to bring back to... The second article I wrote um, a day earlier, and I'll link both these articles in, in show notes, about what we can learn from the deportation of this, you know, kind of low-level former Nazi um, prison guard at a concentration camp who was just deported. You know, again, At that first debate over naturalization in 1790, one of the first sessions of the House of Representatives, um, James Jackson, a congressman, I believe, from, from Georgia, he, he talked about this idea of a probationary period of residency. It was the understanding that, you know, we would certify good behavior and make sure a person's of good character. Theodore Sedgwick from Massachusetts spoke about that, that we would only bring in people that were fit for the society into which they were blended, reputable and worthy characters, 
Madison said meritorious. And again, that's not utopian. We could ensure that. And where we make a mistake, we could easily rectify it and kick them out. I want to demonstrate to you guys the power of the rule of law on immigration. When you strip away PC, when PC is not a factor, everyone understands law and order and the need for it. And I want you to understand how amazing it is, this contrast, how it's lacking in 99.9% of cases of either criminal aliens, alien terrorists, or, you know, just all-around bad character immigrants that never get deported. So, so I'm sure a lot of you saw the news earlier this week. This guy, ICE announced, this guy, Jaku Polidze, um, a Polish immigrant, 95 years old. He was deported on a stretcher. He's not just 95. He's, like, dying, too. He, he could barely speak or walk. He was deported on a, on a stretcher um, to Germany, after being a citizen of this country for – he was in the country for, I guess, 70-odd um, years or so, since 1947, he was a citizen for almost a half a century. They discovered that he – again, very likely just conscripted. There's no evidence he was like you know someone that electively did anything really bad – but at the end of the day, he was a Nazi prison guard in a, in a Polish camp under occupied territory. And, you know, that was a question on the citizenship form at the time. Um, that is inadmissible. It is Section 212A3E of the INA. If you did any work for the Nazi regime in any way, you're inadmissible and you're deportable if you're here and you can't become a citizen. And he put on the thing, he said that during the war he worked on his father's farm in Poland and, you know, so he lied. Nonetheless, and, and don't take it like I'm defending and sounding like I don't think he should have been deported, but bear with me and see my point here. He was, nonetheless, he was never a threat I mean, let's face it. I mean, if you weren't, you know, part of the real, you know, people that signed up to work under Eichmann and Himmler and Menengel and people like that, you know, any 18-year-old dude, male at that time, you know, there were very few very brave people that risked their lives and even got killed by defying the Nazis. But it was really very few people, um, you know, you were going to be conscripted into it and you would have done some work, Um and the reality is most of them, when they came to America, Germans, I mean, they didn't exhibit that ideology or ever try to network and get back together and, you know, promote violence and subversion here. Most of them live peaceful lives, put their head down and whatever. So there's no from – from a public policy standpoint – it's really the lowest thing on the totem pole. There's no – I'm talking about even in the 50s. Certainly now that the guy is 95 years old, was a citizen for 50 years. Nonetheless, the law is the law of those law. Generally speaking, we all agree this is a worthy and good law that was passed at the time and still in the books. And this guy officially did 
get naturalization under false pretenses. And he was did work in a Nazi prison camp. And therefore, we could de- denaturalize him after 50 years. And then it took, you know, years upon years, like, you know, over 10 years to find a place because uh, Poland and Ukraine didn't want to take him. Finally, we bullied Germany into taking him. And we put him on a stretcher and kick him out of here. And there's no protest from the left. And I said to myself, dude, we got 1.3 million, according to ICE, at any given time, criminal aliens, mainly illegals, but some legal criminal aliens at large in this country that are dangerous now, mainly young people in the here and now. We have so many people associated with MS-13, the most violent ideology and group that is here now, and it's a threat now. We have so many Muslim immigrants, not all, but imams that forget about 50-year naturalized citizens. They're they're still even LPRs, and you don't even need to go through the whole process, due process, trying to denaturalize. We could throw them the hell out. They're, they have, they're preaching insurrection. They're preaching hatred. They have horrible moral character, which is requ- the requirement for naturalization. And yet, we won't even touch them. It's so rare, these people that have Hamas connections, Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, they gave Cruz hell when Cruz and Steve King introduced the Terrorist Expatriate Act to denaturalize um, ISIS fighters. Gave them hell. Never got a vote. When Lee Zeldin introduced legislation more recently to denaturalize anyone caught being a member of MS-13 10 years after naturalization, they give him hell. This is fascism. And these are existential threats. Let me, let me just give you a very bold contrast to this college Polish guy. And again, I'm for the rule of law. To me, this is what it means when you have a just law that's good policy and it's the laws on the books – That's what the rule of law is. You're going to carry it out even in the harshest manifestations of it. So when it comes to what's perceived as Nazism, and even though he wasn't really like, you know, not in the sense of the people they caught in the 50s and 60s that literally worked with Eichmann and whatever, you know, I mean, none of those are alive because by definition, if you were a higher ranking person that was more involved, you couldn't have been 18 years old, very unlikely. So you'd have to be at least 110 115 at this point, they're not alive anymore. It's it's the last remnant of these are really, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to judge on the politics of whether we should focus on that. You know, justice is justice, but it's certainly from a deterrent standpoint, from a public safety standpoint, there's nothing there. But justice is important, and I, I certainly, I'm consistent on that. But these people are telling us, oh my gosh, Oh, Islam, we need to bring them here. Oh, my gosh. There's articles about El Salvador. They have no choice but to join MS-13. It's all over the place. Are you kidding me? So we had 
I didn't. I, I referenced this a couple weeks ago. There was a recent court case. This guy, um, Iman Faris, was recruited in 2003 by Al Qaeda to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge. You can't get more existential than that. He was surveilling it in preparation for a bombing. 2003. He was a Pakistani immigrant who was naturalized not 70 years before that, four years before that. So it's quite evident. There's no way you could tell me that just popped in that guy's mind. There's no way in the year 1999 he could have validly put his hand on the Bible and swore the oath to, quote, abjure all allegiance to foreign powers and to support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Again, I'm not saying you could denaturalize anyone who later on you find is a bad dude. But if you find that they clearly were working for an enemy of the United States, that is more treason and that is de- that is denaturalization territory. But the freaking judge said, no, 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 you can't prove he had it at the time 1999. I could promise you a judge wouldn't say that with any, you know, guy who, who did so, was conscripted into the Nazis um, even though he was a citizen for 50 years. And indeed, you know, the court in that case upheld in the Southern District of New York. This is the scary thing about the left. It's all identity. It's all identity. Some re- how Nazism has successfully been pinned on the right it's white and right. It's viewed as white and right. So there's no mitigating factors. You could go all out. And you see everyone's like, they'll literally take it to the gates of hell. And, and again, I'm, I'm consistent in that. I'm just saying it's not that these people are consistently pacifists. They're perfectly all about identity. When it comes to MS-13 and when it comes to Islamists and Hamas and Muslim Brotherhood, they are perceived as people of color, so therefore it cannot be a problem. That is what is so scary rather than being perfectly for the uniform rule of law, irrespective of who's who on any given party, they are uniformly for identity politics. And it's so scary. That's what scares me, watching that, that everyone cheers that on you know, and again, I'm not, you know, people could debate here and there. I'm not getting involved in that. I'm just saying what we could learn from that is that is that is how far our history and tradition in this common sense, deeply rooted social compact theory of governance that because the predominant role of government is to protect us from external enemies. That's why we have it. My gosh, the only people that should be admitted to our society are people we could prove have good moral character, much less have any whiff of criminality, ties to enemies, ties to hate, you know, violent um, ideologies and groups. 
And it's like, you know, we talk about how in the old days, like, they were so dogmatic about this. We talked about last week the Kaplan v. Todd case where there was this immigrant family that came over and they were separated for so long and they were a nice family. And they took one look at the girl and they were like, feeble-minded, inadmissible, gone. You know, like, and, you know, because that was in statute. And, you know, generally speaking, they only, they didn't want to burden Americans. And they applied it even in harsh circumstances. And, you know, I was like lamenting, like, you know, how times have changed. And I looked at this Nazi case. I was like, Wow, that's one case we're still willing to do it. But here's the deal. Nazism is section 212.8.3F. I get news for you. One subsection over, 212.8.3E. I'm sorry, no, E is Nazis. F is um, uh, terrorism. It makes inadmissible any alien the secretary, quote, determines has been associated with a terrorist organization and intends while in the U.S. to engage solely, principally, or incidentally in activities that could endanger the welfare, safety, and security of the United States. If we applied that, you would have – There's there are good Muslim immigrants, but I will tell you, you will have tens of thousands who should be deported, but certainly these imams – with connections to Hamas, preaching insurrection. But even the downright terrorists, we can't even get the LPRs out, much less denaturalizing recent naturalized citizens. If we applied 10% of the harshness and consistency we have in the Nazi statute to everyone else and Islamic terrorists, we'd truly make America great again. The point is, we could pick our immigrants. We can't pick our, our natural-born citizens. And, and naturalized citizens is somewhere in between. It's a lot harder, but you could officially denaturalize in the right circumstances. The amount of naturalization fraud we have, people lying, I write about that in the piece too. We never go after that. Now, the Trump administration has been doing a better job. But these are the problems we have. It's all avoidable. All of this. This is the conversation that we need to have as a country, but sadly this is the conversation you're not really hearing from conservative media, conservative politicians, or really um, anyone else. And um, that's... That's the story. That's the story with this. I, I want you guys to understand this. We don't have to take this as a nation. Not at all. Not by a long shot. Oh, and just one thing while I'm talking here. You know, I, I get distracted often just, you know, seeing different things. I mean, the, the news cycle is so fluid. Um, my buddy Steve King... Congressman Steve King from Iowa just put out a graphic showing how 16 of the top 20 most violent countries in the world are south of the Rio Grande, right? They're in Latin America. And the point we've been making all along is when you import in large numbers, not just a couple of individuals in large numbers from the most violent countries, well, you're going to bring the violence here. And a big part of this 
are these unaccompanied alien children. Just today, Congress is passing a bill. The Senate is passing a funding bill for HHS, with how, which houses the Office of Refugee Resettlement, without any policy riders to properly define what a UAC is. These are not victims. These are traffickers, and, and they're stealing identities. Every day, 20 more of these people skip their trial, their hearing, and they disappear into our population. They totally disappear. I mean, that is one of the most important things. This UAC invasion needs to be stopped, and 200,000 of them, 300,000 of them, whatever, need to be deported. They are the most dangerous people around. Not all of them, but none of them are entitled to be here. And a heck of a lot of them are MS-13 or related or, or just violent in general. They need to be deported. It's just patently obvious. But before we sew things up here, I just want to go back to this identity theft stuff. You know... There's this crazy court case in 2009. Um, I'm forgetting what it is now. It's Flores something. Um, Flores, gosh, I can't even pronounce all these names, but it had a second name to it. And the court ruled that you can only charge someone for an aggravated identity theft if they intended to steal from John Doe. But, you know, if they just, you know, just got fraudulent documentation and it happened to be a specific person, that's identity fraud, not identity theft. And the problem is what that did is it shielded all these illegals from prosecution and, and the deterrent that's inherent in it simply because what they do is they get from the coyotes as part of the package of coming here. They get false identities. So they can say, well, I didn't know, which is BS. That's what you're doing. Of course you know. So that needs to be fixed. We need legislation on that. I'm going to be working with some members of Congress to get them to introduce that. In addition, Social Security Administration and the IRS have all the data on the illegals that use um, stolen identity. They purposely shield them. And there's this whole effort by Ways and Means Committee, which oversees – see, the Judiciary Committee is a little better, House Judiciary Committee at least – but they only oversee Justice Department. Ways and Means is full of garbage, and they oversee SSA and IRS, and they don't want to get them involved in immigration. But, but what do you mean? If, you're, if the government saddled us with Social Security, you have an, a responsibility to protect that. And they need to mandate that the agencies work together to detect every duplicate identity – Immediately inform the individual, immediately inform the employer, and mandate the employer fire them. And then I would argue immediately, immediately inform that local, local law enforcement of that jurisdiction. See, this is a whole other aspect I don't have so much time to get into now, but the synergy between – cooperation of, of state and local law enforcement and and the feds. See, often it's going to be the state guys, the local, really the local cops, the sheriffs that come into contact with these dudes. 
right? They're going to be the ones that find them, right? That detect them initially. But you see in this case, we don't know what the guy's name that he went by, the Elias, right? What the government announced is his real name was Rivera. But let's say it was Martinez is the name that he went by. And, you know, this is the thing. So they they get um, driver's licenses. I don't know if in this case he did, but they get jobs based on it. And they walk around with these identities. Imagine if, um, you know, IRS would look it up. Hey, Martinez, that's this legal immigrant or American citizen living in Texas. Um put out a notice to the employer, put out a notice in this case to um, that county in Iowa to the law enforcement and say, Martinez is not really Martinez, it's Christian Rivera because here's the deal. Here's the deal with this stuff that's so important. Um, you know, the federal agencies are the best equipped to deal with this. They have the biometrics, they have the cooperation, the foreign databases, the attaches in in Latin American countries, you know, whether it's DEA, CBP, ICE. Um, I, I, I mean, I've t- spoken with a lot of these agents. That's that's the story. They, they could find out who these people really are. The local cops aren't going to know that, but they're going to be the ones apprehending them. That's why this cooperation is so important, and we need to, as a part of the just general need to um, expand the bond between local and federal law enforcement on immigration, we need to require the federal agencies to inform the locals. So at least the ones that want to cooperate with us will be aware of this. I'm telling you, you're going to deter this in three seconds. You know, this is this is the reality. Now, I have a lot more. I don't have, I mean, we're just about out of time, but I'm going to link to in show notes. Um, Fox News has an article of MS-13 gang members. Um, more than, uh, uh, they were in court, uh, indicted on a quadruple murder, and they were unaccompanied alien children from Central America, El Salvador in this case, that just came in. This is the garbage we're bringing in. And also a report from my buddy, um, new friend of mine, Todd Benzman. Um, he's a new uh, scholar at Center for Immigration Studies. He just left Texas Department of Public Safety, their intelligence division. Um, he has a whole article on this DACA recipient that was caught trying to plant bombs, plant bombs against ICE. I mean, this is the type of crap we're bringing into the country and giving status to. And the judge wanted to let him out on $1,500 bail until DOJ showed his Twitter account. You know, what, it was full of all this stuff. So this is the garbage we're letting in. Then, you know, then there's jailbreak, which ties into this. We have a side that is working on lies. All of our people are bought out. I am the last person standing. Jim DeMintz, the top name, signed onto this stupid letter. because All because of donors. I have friends from, let's just say, if you had to create a spectrum, libertarian coke groups on the one end and like security, safety, immigration hawks on the other end, 
Let me just tell you, I've had friends in the letter that tell me that even donors of their organizations, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, are bought into this. That's how bad it is. Thankfully, John Cornyn evidently put out yesterday, or he told the media that jailbreak is dead for the remainder of this year. But, you know, we've said that before, and, and there's, there's a lot behind it. So we need to remain vigilant on that. I'm going to continue to hit that strongly and speak the truth on this because knowledge is power, and, and that's the best we can do. Empower you with the knowledge, empower you with the issues. And as long as God gives me the strength, I'm going to keep doing it. And how do I get some of that strength? It's because I've had a sleep revolution with my purple mattress. We have our sponsors here that believe in our work. Purple Mattresses. They're really cool cool people. Go to purple.com. Check out their video. It's amazing how they explain. I don't even know how to explain the type of silicone material that they make it out of. It's not foam. It's not typical mattresses. It's something so unique that shields you from the pressure points but is also supportive where you need it. Uh, I also have their great cushion. I used to have horrible hip pain. Um, from just the strain of sitting and writing and researching and just sitting in my chair all day. Um, so I got the, the the cushion as well. But if you issue promo code Daniel, you'll get a free purple pillow, which in itself is worthwhile. Um, again, 100-day free trial. It, it just If nothing else, get 100 days free pillow with promo code Daniel, free mattress. Um Try it out. If you don't like it, you could return it. Shipping is free. Return is free if you do like it. 10-year warranty behind it. Um, purple mattresses, you got to try it out. I'm telling you, it is worth the investment. Uh, you'll see it right away, and that will give you energy to do whatever you do in life. In my case, that is to speak the truth about public policy from not just a conservative perspective, but just a common sense American perspective. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 